I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... I think that the location of Amazon here long-term has a chance to be the most significant economic event since the federal government decided to locate in Washington. Or the founding of the internet in Northern Virginia. I'd say those three things, when we look back in 30 years, will be the most powerful events in the business history of the Washington area. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh, and this time we have a guest named Mark Ein. You probably know the name. He is literally Mr. D.C., chairman of Castle Systems, owns the city paper, owns the, what, the city open here, chairman of Venture House Group, a venture firm. We talked about several things that you'll love. One is capital formation as a venture capitalist, private equity, and SPAC guy. He talks about the formation of capital and how that marketplace has changed over time. Secondly, as I said, he's a Washington, D.C. native. Grew up here, stayed here, runs businesses here. We talk about how Washington can maybe clean up a reputation that it's not responsible for, that is kind of negative branding around the nation and the world. And lastly, he tells a story about Rafael Nadal coming to play for the City Open that you will not believe. Here's our conversation. Welcome to the show. It's so great to be here, Mark. I always love our time together and looking yeah. forward to our chat. Yeah. So we used to share offices back in the day uh, looking at deals for Venture House Group. Let's start with venture investment. Um, you've had, I mean, you came from private equity, started in, you know, sort of the, the venture firm, had a wide variety of investments, and you started a firm, as I recall, in one of the worst possible years to do that. Do you see any parallels between when you started Venture House Group and some of the crazy valuations that seem to be creeping up to what may be another version of that? Yeah, it definitely feels like a bit of a repeat of sort of the internet boom 1.0, yeah. where people were buying into concepts more than they were business models and solid valuations. Kind of everyone has a venture fund, everyone has a startup. So those yeah. things are very similar. Um, and I actually think the outcome is going to be somewhat similar too, which is that you'll have some, and you have seen some huge new companies emerge that disrupt incumbents in big spaces. You'll have a lot of companies that go out of business and people lose money. But net-net, underlying it, it's the most profound period of fundamental change I've ever seen. Every single industry is under attack. Every single industry has disruptors, and they're really well-funded. And it all fits kind of in the zeitgeist of where we are today, which is looking for tomorrow more than yesterday. And so I think underlying it, there's a lot of reasons that there's a ton of interest in investing in and being part of new disruptive businesses. It's important to use zeitgeist kind of early in the conversation. It sets the, it sets the tone. But back in the day, in, in 99, 2000, 2001, a lot of folks went public on, on the exchanges. And there seemed to be a real kind of a pause in that for the last three or four years. And then SPACs came around. What, why do you think so many companies stayed private for much longer than they would have back in the day? Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon because, yeah, back in the sort of internet boom 1.0, that was the outcome for so many companies going public. And then partially because so many of them didn't work and failed. And then, and then frankly, the increase in the onerous nature of regulation and cost and time and distraction that got imposed by Sarbanes-Oxley and additional regulations that got added, people said, I don't want to be part of a mm -hmm. public company. And then a whole set of investors – arose, including the mutual funds, who went to these private companies that would otherwise go public and say, 
I'll give you the capital and let you stay private longer because I want to own a bigger piece of your business and I can get if you go public. And so a, a, a dear friend and one of the world's great growth investors who lives in the DMV, Henry Ellenbogen, really pioneered this at T. Rowe. He now has his own firm that's extraordinarily successful called Durable, but then Fidelity and Wellington, and they all followed. So they enabled the companies to stay private longer. And for all those reasons, people really liked it. Now, in the last couple of years, that has changed. SPACs have been a big part of going public, but then the IPO market has really come back and people want to go public. And I think it's there's a couple of reasons. I, I, honestly, at the end of the day, a lot of it is valuation, is yeah. that the public market is paying valuations greater than the private market. And so people, companies want to go get them. But then also, I do think it has become more of an important branding event, employee event for companies to go public to provide that liquidity for their early investors, but the people who work there. Um, and, and the brand of being a public company is now good, where yeah. it hasn't been for a long time prior. Well, you, you were... I mean, SPACs have been around for a while, as we know. Uh, there have been different names. But you pioneered, successfully pioneered, a whole bunch of activity there. What attracted you to that model? And what, how did you find your way to be, to sort of have some magic sauce in it? We've, we've raised and closed five SPAC acquisitions since 2007. We did the first one in 2007. And what appealed to me, it was not, it was a means to an end. It was a way of doing the kind of investing that I came to like. And you mentioned that I've done everything from early stage, seeding companies, growth, to buyouts. And what I kind of decided I love to do was work really closely with companies, spend a lot of time and a lot of money in a small number of situations where we can roll up our sleeves and be the closest partners to the team as they build great businesses. So it's all about concentration. And what I loved about the SPAC, it was a single investment vehicle where you made, you bought one or invest in one company you had two years to do one thing. And then because your ultimate investors were public market investors, you could have a long time frame because they, are, they have a public market. They can buy and sell whenever they want, but you can stay in it for a long time. And I was always frustrated in private equity where there was a lot of pressure after three or four years to sell it or do yeah, something. Flip it. Just as the companies were getting going and starting to compound, yeah. everyone's like, now it's time to sell. And I'm like, no, now it's time to compound. And so the SPAC product fit what I wanted to do. That's why I got into it originally. And then we got into it, and the first one, we started this mortgage REIT in the bottom of the financial crisis. It became one of the biggest, most successful mortgage REITs. And I really realized that for a certain set of companies, it's the perfect way to access the public market. It's not for every company. Some companies shouldn't be public, and some going public the regular way is right. But there's a set of companies where the tools at your disposal, the sponsorship of someone like our team – is the right way to enter the public market. And fortunately, I'd say all five of the companies we invest in are great companies, and all this was the right way to go public. Well, your batting average is pretty impressive. Uh, you've seen some blow up. Are there features of some that have been less successful that you've seen sort of common, or is it all over the map? Well, it's <laughs> the common feature of the ones that work is people take it seriously yeah. and have a team and do the work. The common feature of the ones that don't is people really don't know what they're getting themselves into and they kind of wing it and they don't have the resources and they're just trying to get a deal done. And the first thing they do, they throw it out and see if it sticks. Sometimes you actually get the deal closed, but then the company ultimately tanks and it's a bad outcome for everyone. From the beginning, uh, long before anyone else did it, we invested in a full team of people. We looked at hundreds and hundreds. We would look at hundreds of companies a year and had the resources to do the proper work. We viewed it 
as a as a as any other investment. And I think when you look at the people who've done it well, that's a common thread: is a they have the right approach where they take it seriously, the right resources, and then they also can help the companies going forward. So good companies want to work with them, and so. It's great, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens from here. I think they will have a permanent place in the ecosystem uh, long term because it, for as I said, for the right companies, it's a good it's a good product. Yeah. Well, you're probably the sort of the poster child for the Chamber of Commerce of the DMV, which I'm still still getting used to saying. Um, as a local citizen who's stayed local with some of your behavior, so let's let's walk through that. So Castle Systems, a great local company that you acquired when and why did it appeal to you? Yeah, so first of all, I am a local kid. Yeah. I'll say I grew up on the mean streets of Chevy Chase. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> I did. Um, but uh, fighting, but <laughs> fighting off. Yeah. It was rough, yeah, yeah. No, but in all seriousness, a wonderful, I mean, the broader community is a wonderful place. Grew up in Chevy Chase was an ideal place, and I went to all the public schools. BCC, great. BCC, Leland before that, and Rollingwood Elementary School down the Street from Candy Cane City, and of course. great, wonderful childhood and wonderful community to be part of. And my dream always was to come back to Washington and build my life. But when I got out of business school in the early '90s, there wasn't a big business community here. So fortunately, I got a job at Carlisle, which at the time was literally the only firm I could have imagined working for because it's what I wanted to do, and it was the only one. Today, when people come here, they have a lot more options, and it's a lot bigger and broader community, but that was always my dream. And so I felt really lucky I had the chance to do it. And then I sort of had this vision of creating a life where you would help build companies, but then you'd also be involved civically, philanthropically, in sports, ideally. And, you know, so far, been able to check a lot of those boxes, which is which is great. It really is kind of, I feel like it's a dream come true, and I love this community. Um, and so that was my mindset. And then I bought Castle from the amazing founder, Gene Sandberg, who founded this great company uh, at the beginning of 2007. And as soon as I met the company, I thought this is the perfect company for what I like to do, what I think we're pretty good at, and something that I could build and grow for a really long time. It's a iconic company. People call their, that whatever card they used to get in their building, their Castle card, right. it's like Coke or Xerox or yeah. Uber. And um, and Gene had built an incredible company, but I saw had a vision for how we could make it much, much bigger and broader than it was. And it's lived up to all that. Um, he gave us an amazing foundation and we've taken it and really uh, taken it to a completely different level. And, and we have a long way to go still. Well, at, at the risk of blowing smoke up, uh, whatever orifice makes sense, because uh, I'm a, I'm a, I love you like a brother from another mother, and I know your mother is right, lives right near the studios <laughs> yes, here. But you, you're a born brander, in my personal opinion, and you took that brand. When was the aha moment that you were like, this, this word castle, can go places other than what the company does, and how, how did that work out? Well, so the first time I met the company, it wasn't really for sale, but Gene was kind of interested and. In, doing something. And I met some people who were close to the company and I spent a bit of time with them and I came back to my office and I did something I've never done in my life before. I'd never done before and I haven't done since. I just told my assistant, come in my office and bring the calendar. She brought it in. I said, cancel everything for the next month. And she said, what are you talking about? Because it's a pretty busy calendar. Yes. I said, I'm dropping everything because this is the opportunity of my lifetime so far. Wow. Because again, I mean, Gene had built this great company, great brand, great culture, great business model. And it was serving an industry that I thought would be here for the rest of our lives. I would do, I would give up Castle, which is a very valuable company, if tomorrow we could 
snap our fingers and the world would be a safe place, but it's not, and it's yeah. not getting safer. And so the need to create security and technologies that make security more effective, um, more economic and less intrusive is here forever. So I saw that. And I just, I saw the, this foundation that we could build on. And so it literally was the first time I really got exposed to the company. And and then the more we got into it and, and every year we find more and more that we can use this platform to do new things, to add value to our customers. But before we go to break, you took the brand and turned it into a sports icon here in the D.C. area. How, how it, it, can you start that story before we go to break? How did that happen? Well, just, yeah, super quick. I decided to start this World Team Tennis team in Washington. And I was actually interviewed right, right at the same time I bought Castle. And I was interviewing a new CMO candidate for Castle. And we were talking about this. And he said, you should name the team after the company. And I said, doesn't sound right. I was going to name it the, the Aces or the Rackets or, yeah. you know, something right. like that. Dragons. right? Yeah. The monuments, the memorials. He yeah. said, no, you should think about it. And he actually said, you know, sports teams in the early days were named after their owners' companies. Right. The, the Steelers and the Packers were all named. And so there's a long history of that. And he kind of convinced me, and the more I thought about it, that we could take that as a brand and change it to a sports team icon with a knight as a mascot and all that. And uh, and it worked. It was a great decision. I give him a ton of credit, and um, it's worked really. It's worked really well. And it's funny because for a long time, I think the sports team was more well known than the company. And Correct. In recent years, I think the company's become even. It's flipped a bit, but it was a. It was great for everyone, and people really embraced it. And um, someone did like post some weird cartoon of like our mascot is like a building access card with arms and legs. <laughs> Um, which was what I feared, but it, that kind of yeah. came and went. So it was, it worked out really well for everyone. Branding thy name is Ein. It's Mark Ein <laughs> is our guest here on What's Working in Washington. I am your host, Mark Walsh. We'll be back with more conversation with Mark after this break. There's a way to get involved with the show. You can DM us on Twitter if you have one of two outcomes. A, you want to be a sponsor. Or B, if you have a person or an issue or a company or any entity that you think we should be featuring. Again, DM us on Twitter. It's What's Working in Washington. Working in Washington, I am your host, Mark Walsh. We're excited to have as our guest today, Mark Ein. Mark is chairman of Castle Systems, amongst other titles we can lay out. But we're talking about Mark's really amazing business career from being born and growing up in Washington, D.C. to staying in Washington, D.C. And with a title like What's Working in Washington, we sometimes ask our, our, our guests, why, why Washington? And I think you're almost the perfect example. Look, we're clearly a, a company town, or people accuse us of being a company town, the $4 trillion entity, U.S. government. When you travel the world as you do, what's your impression of people's impression of Washington, D.C., and how can we push back on it if it's negative? Yeah, I mean, so this, is, I think, is kind of the core issue for our region. As you said, it's known as a company town, and even worse— 
And it, we, I'm part of a lot of these conversations. I was part of the group that was trying to bring the Olympics here. I'm the chair of the group that's working, and I believe we will get the World Cup here. And this is the issue you always run across is, A, it's known as the seat of the federal government, and B, even worse, it's branded through millions of repetitions as the swamp and Washington derisively in a totally different beltway. In, in beltway yeah. But it's but it's really Washington. But it's actually the worst part is it's the name Washington is used derisively, not actually about the town we live in and the restaurants and the beautiful places we live, but just because they're using it about the government. But it's the same name as our city. And so, you know, when we talk about needing to invest in marketing campaigns to promote our region, which we need to do. It's just you'll never be able to spend enough money to overcome basically politicians and commentators derisively using the same name of our town in a negative way. So it's a very core issue. The flip side of it is that the fundamental truth is Washington is an absolutely amazing place. I mean, I came here because I was from here. It's grown so much, but it's an amazing place to do business. It's an amazing place to live. It's one of the most popular tourist destinations in the world. As a quick aside, you mentioned I own the City Open. Rafael Nadal came this summer. Um, he had never been to Washington. What? And he had never been to Washington. And wow. And this is going to be a, now a, less of a quick aside, so we'll get back on track. But Go it's a it. good story because yeah. when Rafael said he was going to come, we were talking to his agent. And I said, look, if he comes, I'd love to show him the sites and, and introduce him to people. And we have great restaurants. And he said... No, if Rafa comes, he's coming to win the tennis tournament, not to be a tourist. <laughs> I said, okay, well, I actually like that because that's yeah. what I want him to do. But he got here and he started walking around the town and really liking it. And so he and I had lunch and he wanted to see more of it and more of it. And then I gave him bikes and he rode around the mall and he wow. said, I love this city. He's, I absolutely love the city. And he posted pictures of himself on his bike in front of the Lincoln Memorial in the Capitol, which is great, except he called it the White House, but it's <laughs> It is white, but um, <laughs> but uh, but knew? it was who knew? But he, and he corrected it with a smile. But it was amazing, and he you know he really loved it. And it was interesting. After he lost here, he stayed in town for another three or four days. And his coach told me he goes, I don't can't remember in twenty years a time that we didn't leave town as soon as we lose. We I'll never do that. But he goes, he just loved it so much. And so that's one anecdote of someone who's traveled the world and seen the world in the most extraordinary ways who loved it. But it happens every day, and. People who come visit me and people who do business here understand the underlying truth of what an incredible place it is. And then you have the greatest data point ever about this as a place to do business, which is Amazon did the single most extensive corporate relocation or headquarters search in the history of corporate America. They did. They looked at 218 cities. They shortlisted 20 then they shortlisted three, and they pick one, our city. Yep. It was the most comprehensive, most sophisticated search ever, and they picked us. That tells you everything you need to know about how great Washington is a place um, to do work and and to, to have a business, to, to live. And so we just got to get those those positive data points out more and more. And and I and then I actually think in the end, the truth will set you free. Yes. And it is less of a undiscovered secret than it used to be. But yeah, we're still overcoming sort of that overall fog of the negative branding because of the politics of Washington. But underlying it, more and more people are understanding what a special place it is to live and work. Do you see pride as an issue, local pride, or do you think that is also re-energized or accelerating? I think that there's an incredible, I mean, local pride's much greater than it ever was. And part of it is that again, even when I moved here, there weren't that many Washington natives. And now yeah. that now 
there's generations of people who've been here and, and are from here or have lived here long enough that they feel that civic pride. It used to be people came and went for the most part. And so I, I and I and then we have success in sport teams. You can't underestimate how powerful that is when you have championship parades of teams wearing the name of your city across the jersey for the hockey team and the baseball team. There's all those kinds of things. And so it is a city on the move. It's a city for a, a community, not a city, with a massive upward trajectory. But yeah, we're always fighting that sort of perception that comes from the politics of the of the federal government. Well, certainly generation or, or generating local pride is it's 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 dicey. And I think one of the great things that you've done and I was happy to be a, a very tangential part of it is buying the Washington City paper and saving a local alternative news weekly that most cities used to have, as you know more than anybody. And that experience must have sort of, I think, helped fuel your enthusiasm. Yes? Yeah. Well, it's, I did it because I think culture is important to a city, and we've been an important part of the culture of the city for 40 years. And it is a little bit of connective tissue between the the things we write about, the restaurants, the performing arts, the people who advertise there about all the great things to do in Washington. And then also just our coverage of of local issues, which is really, really critical because local journalism's been devastated everywhere. Yep. And even places like our paper, The Washington Post, which is extraordinary what they've done, but they've become more extraordinary, more through focus on national and international issues than local. So there's a huge white space in local journalism um, as an opportunity, but even more important to serve the community because it makes the community better when you have strong journalists covering it. And so for all those reasons, I did it. And yeah, definitely owning it has has only deepened my belief in our community. And, uh, and, and I see firsthand the strength of it. As I recall, you mentioned to me that that purchase seemed to get more attention than almost anything that you've done elsewhere. Is that still your view? It seemed like an amazing response. <laughs> it, it was at the time. It's it, it was funny because I got we got a call in my office from the White House, Donald President Trump. They said the president wants to send you something, and I asked. I said, "Well, that must be a joke." He said, "No." And then one day it showed up. The Washington Post had written an article, and he, with his sharpie, said, "Congratulations, yeah. Mark signed it and sent it wow. to me from." President, yeah. that famous Sharpie, he signed his name over something that was probably a, not the most flattering comment, but it was okay. So it's funny. Yeah. yeah. So let's go to venture again, because I think we're actually, oddly, the, the studios we're in houses the largest mm-hmm. venture capital firm, I think, in the United States, New Enterprise Associates. Where do you see, I, I, I see venture firms either going small and nimble or getting huge and gargantuan, almost doing private equity type investments. Where, where do you see the mid-sized venture capital firm reoccurring or staying strong? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the big firms have a really distinct advantage because of access to capital. But also, I mean, at the end of the day, the best companies who have their pick of firms want to pick the ones who are going to add the most value. So they right. want to see the ones eh, who have the most the best track record, who, who have been part of building great companies so they can get that wisdom imparted on them. And then who have the best relationships, especially with strategic partners they may want to partner with. And those are all much more resident in the bigger firms generally. If you're going to be a midsize or smaller firm, you got to solve for that. If you're a smaller midsize firm because, say, you were a partner at a big firm and you have a great track record, I think you can do really well. If you're a smaller midsize firm and you have amazing relationships 
um, with strategic partners, I also think you can do well. What I think is hard is just to be a run-of-the-mill, less-value ad because you think you can pick good ones because the best companies and best entrepreneurs know that when they take on an investor, they want a firm and people who are going to add value, and they're pretty good at deciphering who does that and who doesn't. Is it true, that, is the same analogy you just made true for investment banks? Because I know you've worked with the, one of the largest on the planet for your SPACs. Yeah. You obviously have some loyalty. Did you see this sim- similar kind of uh, functionality in how investment banks that are publicly traded with access to capital versus the smaller, more private ones? Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting. The bigger banks, what they bring is actually capital themselves and a balance sheet. And then, um, but what's interesting is so many of the best people who have stayed in investment bank as opposed to say being going to private equity or hedge funds or whatever have gone to these advisory firms because yeah. they get compensated better for what they do and so there's this emergence of these boutique niches of people who were great at big firms and some of them are fantastic and they do a great job so my answer to that is just it really depends what you're looking for for some things a big firm with a good balance sheet's good and for others a smaller more advisory oriented firm is better Okay, Mark, on it's time for magic wand moment. Uh, if there's one thing, let's stay in Washington. What, what, what the heck? If there's one thing in Washington or Washington writ large, you could turn down the volume of or get rid of, or one thing you would add to this town or to the structure. What would it be? There's two. One we talked about, which is this sort of brand of Washington. That's yeah. sort of a that's a massive issue. So um, the the other one is just <laughs> the region working together because. Really, we are one region, and and our problems are are more common. I mean, they're all common problems, but you have these different jurisdictions that make it very hard to come together to do what's best for the region. And we try, and it's there's efforts, and and it's and some good things come, but it would be so much more powerful if you could. Now, this is truly waving a magic wand because it's not easy to do because yeah. of their different jurisdictions. But if you really could get the near the DC, if you get DC, the near in Virginia suburbs and the near in Maryland suburbs to view as one community, you would unlock a lot of really wonderful things. And the fact that we can't do that is is an impediment a bit to some of the things that we could otherwise accomplish. Well, you mentioned Amazon before in our final set of comments with each other. That seemed like a regional appeal, but at the same time, Maryland was chasing it as well. And Baltimore was. So there was even competition in the most, I would say, transformational of economic event to happen in the last two decades here. So that competition, it just it's it's self-defeating. Yeah. And D.C. wanted it, too. And but, you know, yeah. everyone will benefit a little bit because of the economic activity. But Virginia will get 90 percent of it because it's where it's located. By the way, I, I think that the location of Amazon here long term has a chance to be the most significant economic event since the federal government decided to to locate in Washington wow. or the founding of the internet in Northern Virginia. I'd say those three things, when we look back in 30 years, will be the most powerful events in the business history of the Washington area. Bold prediction from Mark Ein. Mark Ein has been our guest today in What's Working in Washington. Thanks for being with us, sir. It's so great to be here. Thanks. What's Working in Washington is brought to you by a very talented team. We have our executive producer and editor, Tracy Madigan. Assistant producer is Anna DeGraff. And the theme music you enjoy is performed by The Sunbathers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.